These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. And today, we get to the tale which was, for a long time in the West, considered the oldest and, of course, greatest story ever told, the story of the Bible, beginning with the creation of the world by God and moving through the history of the patriarchs to the Exodus, to the kingdom of Israel, and then on to the story of Jesus of Nazareth. We won't cover the entire Bible today, and indeed we probably won't take Israel much past the Babylonian captivity in this entire show. But we can hardly move forward in the show at this point without at least addressing the kingdom of Israel in some way. Not only is it something that people in the modern world care deeply about, but the historical kingdom was a noticeable, if often fairly minor, player in world events during the Iron Age. Also, I feel that this is a necessary public service because so many people who care deeply about this issue are, through no fault of their own, ignorant on this topic, either through not having the time to learn much about it or from having gotten their information kind of third-hand based on some sometimes really outdated ideas or even worse, having read a single viewpoint on the matter and now believe they know all there is to know. I suppose that I could leave the Kingdom of Israel out of this story completely until around 900 BCE, when we could mention the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah and just say, ah, we have no idea where these kingdoms come from. They just arose from the swirling population movements of the Bronze Age collapse, and that would, in a sense, be accurate. This is, after all, pretty much all we said last episode about the Neo-Hittites up in the north, as well as the Aramaeans and Philistines in the same region. But Israel is different from all other nations. Theologically, of course, it's different, but that isn't actually too relevant for the pure historical narrative. No, historically it's different because there is an extensive and still surviving document which purports to tell the history of these people during what is, for most of the Near East, a very dark and poorly documented period. Now, imagine we found in the desert a massive and basically complete compendium of literature from a period of Mesopotamian history that we otherwise know very little about. We would not be surprised to see it contain wisdom literature, prayers, and religious texts, and also that the portion which comprises history is written very differently from a modern history, being full of mentions of the will of the gods and divine destiny. But imagine that we found a text and it's so long that it runs over a thousand pages in many standard translations. Well, you can bet your bottom dollar that such a text would be the greatest find in Mesopotamian history, and this show would dedicate probably dozens of episodes to carefully going over just that text, even without a lot of archaeology or supporting details to back up the story. How many episodes, how many little stories in this podcast have been based pretty much only on a single clay tablet written by some king or another detailing an event of that king's life, which I have been taking pretty uncritically. Now, perhaps some of you have already heard this hypothetical. 
It is popular in biblical archaeology circles because a skilled orator can draw out that narrative even more. They can compare the Hebrew Bible to Hammurabi's Code of Laws or to the Stella of the Vultures or to the Neo-Assyrian War narratives. And in truth, it sounds pretty good until you get to the punchline and the biblical archaeologist was actually talking about the Bible. And as soon as the B word gets mentioned, people lose whatever understanding they had before, and they return to their previous ideas of the text, usually thinking it to either be the infallible word of an omniscient god, or the scribblings of Bronze Age goat herders. And in part, this is fair, because the popular analogy has a huge, glaring weak spot. The Bible, as we have it today, is not actually a clay tablet found in the desert. It was a book that was first compiled during the Babylonian exile in the 600s BCE, well after most of the events in the book were over. That is, the part we care about on the show was compiled then. Some events later, like Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, they all take place later. Of course, the New Testament much later. And there really is no credible disagreement on this matter. What you can very fairly dispute is whether the priests who put the Old Testament together in Babylon were mere copyists collecting stuff that had all been written long before, or if they were composers fabricating a narrative whole cloth, or, of course, most likely, if there was some mix of the two. But to make things even worse, we don't have this Babylonian narrative. We have a much later version called the Septuagint, translated into Greek in the 2nd century BCE, as well as a purely Jewish version called the Masoretic Text, assembled in the 6th or 7th centuries CE. And aside from the Dead Sea Scroll fragments, which despite being from the 2nd century BCE, or somewhere around there, show noticeable differences from any other text, none of our physical copies of either main version or any other minor version of scriptures comes from before the time of Christ. Now, the careful analysis of textual variants is a science all to itself, and one that puts me to sleep. But the texts are not so divergent that we can't make some decent conclusions about the ages of various parts of the text. But what the Bible is not is a clay tablet written by the participants. It's a copy of a copy, a translation of a translation, redacted and edited more than once, and whether the Holy Spirit guided each of these hands or not, there are enough knowable anachronisms that the Bible cannot be taken uncritically as a literal history of all the events narrated. Which brings me naturally to the question of what role can the Bible play in historical analysis? And I'm going to tell you, I've read a lot but even having read a bunch, there is still so much more that people have written on the Bible that I could never get through it all, even if I wanted to. And this is an odd position for me on this show. 
Up until this point in the show, I genuinely believe that I've read most of the major references for each time period. A good deal of the supporting stuff, especially older journal articles, are locked away in musty academic tomes that I haven't always been able to access, but enough newer scholarship is online that I've been able to look through a good deal of that as well. Now, of course, I've never been able to read everything, but I have always been able to look through what I think is a significant enough portion of the existing literature to present what I hope is a decently balanced look at Mesopotamian history up to this point. Now, that's simply impossible with biblical literature. I'm not, nor could I be, probably with a lifetime of study, an true expert on the matter. Even though the actual hard evidence is extremely limited, probably more limited than all but the very darkest periods of Mesopotamian history, more has been written on the topic of authorship and historicity of the Bible and related matters than probably all the rest of Mesopotamian history. And so I'm sort of just going to do my own thing here. I'm going to break down the point of view into four broad camps, each of which we'll spend some time examining today. Our first camp is the Biblical Literalists. For these people, not a jot nor tittle of the text will ever pass away, being the true and unaltered Word of God written by human hands, perhaps, but those hands were each guided by an infallible Holy Spirit from God himself, and the Lord has preserved the transmission and translation of the authorized version of Scripture. And while these are often the easiest group for the secular academic community to mock, they do contribute important things to the scholarship. These are usually the ones who take the scripture itself the most seriously. And they're often able to untangle apparent contradictions that secular critics are too often content to simply point at without poking too deeply. On the other hand, while there are careful, faithful historians within the community of biblical literalists, there are also a shocking number of people who treat actual history with something approaching utter contempt. I have read and talked to good, faithful, decent people who believe themselves masters of ancient Near East history, yet fail to get even the history presented in the biblical narratives right. I've read and heard Bible scholars who mix up the Persians, Greeks, and Romans in terms of their interactions with the Second Temple Jews. I've encountered texts that thought the Assyrians and Babylonians were different names for the same thing. And that's before you get into the guys who are actively running scams, pretending to find Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant or Abraham's left shoe or whatever. Now, at the far opposite of these guys are what we can call the radical skeptics. Like the hardcore biblical literalists, these are more common among laymen than academics, but you will still see radical skeptic takes in published works. For these guys, nothing in the Bible is true. Jesus wasn't an historical figure, the entire history of Israel is fabricated, the very existence of a nation of Israel wasn't real until the Assyrians conquered it, nothing was written when it says it was written, instead being fiction written hundreds of years later, 
If the Bible says that the sky was blue, they're going to point out that they're in Seattle, and actually the sky is overcast gray, so the Bible is false. In terms of failing, you're going to get the same sort of failure to wrestle with the actual practice of history in a lot of the YouTube videos and popular articles written by people like this. But when you get into the respectable academics who put some of this stuff forward, something that really impresses me is how consistent they can be. Real academics who approach things from a strong, critically skeptical approach will usually apply that perspective to everything. When we get a clay tablet from some king or another over in Mesopotamia, they're the ones pointing out supposed anachronisms to let us know that this is actually a copy written much later. They're the ones finding the propaganda value of a text and wondering whether it's actually true or exaggerated or biased or wholly fictional. Now this show definitely has a perspective, and I have never had much interest in the most radical of skepticism, which at times can reduce things into historical nihilism, where we can't say anything about the past because we can't trust any of our written sources. When talking about biblical skepticism, a good deal of it comes ultimately from anti-theist ideological commitments. But in ancient history more broadly, I think it is more an honest product of an academy deeply obsessed with deconstruction and skepticism more broadly. The fashions of the university nowadays, both postmodernism and identitarianism, have valuable and interesting things to add to the study of ancient history, and there are definitely times I've appreciated a scholar with a focus on those sorts of things. But overall, I usually accept the written sources more or less as written when they aren't flatly contradicted by a good deal of other evidence. And this is actually a surprisingly rare case, at least in the ancient Mesopotamian writings. There are very few times that I've had occasion to note that so-and-so wrote this about himself, but the evidence shows that he was simply lying. And this kind of brings us to our third group, who isn't really so much a group opposed to the previous two as a, an orthogonal way of looking at things, and that would be our pure archaeologists. Now, oftentimes, a certain work or scholar will be a pure archaeologist just because they're focused intently on their own dig site and simply don't think it's professionally appropriate to synthesize this particular archaeological work with any broader narrative. That synthesis of archaeological data with data from other sites and written text is sort of where archaeology crosses over into history. And while archaeologists are certainly welcome to wear their historian hats, many often choose not to. And while that is usually for pragmatic reasons, there are two kinds of ideologically driven pure archaeologists, or more often papers written in pure archaeological fashion, since most people privately hold either skeptical or faithful views of some sort of another, even if they keep it out of their work. These ideological archaeologists are usually engaged in the practice of pretending the Bible doesn't exist and seeing what they can find in the ground and put together from there. Some are pretending the Bible doesn't exist because they don't believe a word of what it says, and others because they expect to be able to independently discover aspects of biblical history. 
Now, whatever their private perspectives, papers and people doing pure archaeology are nothing but a benefit to all sides, so long as they're engaged honestly. But it'll always be limited, because archaeology is fundamentally just a bunch of broken clay pots without any interpretation. And that brings us to the last and broadest group, what I call the accommodationist historians. In reality, nearly everyone is ultimately some shade of accommodationist, including this show. In this perspective, the Bible is a text written by people who at least intended to record what they believed to be broadly true. At least some of the hands who wrote or edited the various texts into what we have today were centuries behind the events themselves, but they were likely working from either older texts or oral traditions, the validity of which are now impossible to analyze directly. From the variant textual witnesses that have survived to this day, we know that the Holy Spirit has not guarded every letter from corruption. And even those parts which are nearly the same as what was originally written may never have been intended as a literal history in the way that we write history books today. Within this range, there are people who believe that the Bible is nearly completely true with a few anachronisms introduced by later editors or translators, and those who believe that it contains a mere kernel of truth buried around a massive literary work altered by generations of retelling and rebuilding before assuming its modern form, and everything in between. Navigating this is going to be the main concern of the next few episodes, or maybe more than just a few. But before we begin with that, we're going to pause and go back to the radical skeptics and spend the rest of this episode in their hand. And so with all that out of the way, what does Israelite history look like for a radical skeptic? The answer is that it looks a whole lot smaller. We begin in our intellectual exercise by starting with the premise that the Bible is not merely false, but actively fabricated by a group of priests of Yahweh during the 600s BCE for propaganda purposes. We will confine our attentions to the books up to Second Kings and the older prophets, because skepticism for the later books has a different focus. And from this perspective, we know that the Bible is necessarily false because it contains events which we know did not happen. Waters in this book get parted, but that's impossible. The sun gets moved around unnaturally, which we know is impossible. Donkeys and snakes talk, which is impossible. Bushes burn without being consumed. Plagues are caused by censuses and are stopped dead in their tracks at wine presses. Prophets foretell the future. Witches conjure the dead. And an almighty God stands above it all, decreeing death for one people and redemption for another. As skeptics, we know that all this is utter madness, morally dubious, and has more relation to the Lord of the Rings than to the well-understood scientific world of the modern day. Only someone blinded by religion could even take the smallest word of it seriously. And with this as our starting point for investigation, the question naturally arises, 
where did this book come from? If not written by Moses and then a subsequent line of divinely inspired poets, the skeptical answer to that is complicated and ultimately a genuine triumph of literary criticism. And I say that last bit from any perspective. It is the people rejecting the purported ancient origins of the Bible who actually did the work to figure out where it was assembled into its modern form. Looking at features of the narrative, we can break out subunits of composition that, for a skeptic, suggest multiple hands were involved in at least some of the books. Looking at the language and vocabulary, as well as taking clues from Jewish scholarly commentary traditions, we can put the date somewhere around the 70-year-long Babylonian exile. We can call it circa 550 BCE to pin a number on it, plus or minus a few, you know, decades. Now these authors, who we presume were the remnants of the priestly class, had just experienced an extreme fall from power, from being leaders of the state-sponsored religion, which we assume was probably just like all the other religions around them, and had to come up with a reason why the exile community should still support them instead of being attracted to all the Babylonian gods and passing their shekels and sacrifices to other priestly communities instead of themselves. This is where they invented monotheism, searching their oral traditions for stories, searching their near histories for stories, and modifying them brutally and sometimes inconsistently to hammer home the message that you shouldn't support the Babylonian gods, only the God of Israel. This they did for naked economic gain and to maintain power over their community during the exile, and thus not a single word of what they said could have been true. From this, a skeptic realizes that all the impossible-sounding things of the Bible, or all the stuff that isn't historically documented elsewhere, is simply fantasy. All five books of Moses fall under this heading. There were no patriarchs, there was no exodus. The ancestors of the later kingdom of Israel and Judah likely just arose in place, having been Canaanites like all the others or perhaps were one of the many nomadic tribes entering the region in the Bronze Age collapse. A skeptic doesn't really have to be too clear on this part, since there are plenty of cultures whose origins we can't clearly account for. The Sumerians, for example, could have been invaders displacing the Ubayid peoples who lived in southern Mesopotamia before the dawn of writing, or they could have been those same Ubayid peoples just with an evolved culture. The only thing a skeptic needs to be sure of is that the early Israelites were not former Egyptian slaves who had escaped by means of miraculous intervention. Moving the clock further up, there was no Moses, there was no Joshua. The Israelites probably weren't in existence yet during the time of the judges, and those stories are all either made up or borrowed and converted from Canaanite hero stories. Saul, David, and Solomon, in fact, the entire period of unified Israel is also a fiction, invented by later priests, and Israelite history is actually the story of how the house of Omri in the north and the tribe of Judah in the south gradually built independent petty kingdoms starting in the 8 or 900s BCE and then got conquered by the great Mesopotamian empires. 
Naturally, this was a process governed wholly by secular historical forces, not the judgment and guidance of an all-powerful God. Biblical history for the radical skeptic begins only in 853 BCE with the Battle of Karkar, for which we have Assyrian records. This battle is notable for being the first non-biblical mention of a biblical figure, Ahab son of Omri, thus establishing both of them as real, as well as, interestingly enough, being the first historical mention of the Arabs, which is unrelated but kind of cool. It also involves Ben-Hadad of Aram Damascus, who is also a biblical character. Because this is the beginning of things which directly confirm anything in the biblical narrative, we as skeptics can thus safely conclude that nothing at all in the biblical narrative is true prior to that date. After that, we have scattered diplomatic interactions and mostly conquests, which track pretty closely between the Mesopotamian and biblical records, so the priests must have been keeping close at least to what could be confirmed in Babylonian records to avoid being exposed as frauds. Meanwhile, all the prophets are pious fictions, written following the events they foretold in archaic language to pretend to be much older. Those speaking of Jesus, which a skeptic can't rationally claim were written later, are, they'll say, so vague as to be meaningless, as proved by the fact that the Jews never accepted Christ. The book of Esther is an historical fiction written in the style of a Greek novel. The books of wisdom and poetry are nice, but written much later than they claim, and Ezra and Nehemiah is obscure and boring enough to mostly ignore. There are a lot of people, mostly popular writers, bloggers, and YouTube, more than academics, who will proudly present a variation on this as the true and complete history of the real Israel. Skeptical academics are usually presenting a more modest and qualified view than this. But I present it here at the start because it doesn't really fit alongside any other traditional view, instead upending and rejecting pretty much everything. And I'm really grateful that these people have tenaciously put forward the radically skeptical view, because it forces all of biblical archaeology and Near Eastern history in general to wrestle with some really tough questions, and flesh out their support much more strongly than they otherwise might. All that said, I don't agree with this radically reductionist view. I've not been reductionist or skeptical in my analysis of Mesopotamian history and literature. I've consistently advocated for older dates of origin for many of the great myths we've already covered, and even think there's good reason to consider Gilgamesh to be an historical figure, even if he probably wasn't 16 feet tall and maybe never traveled to the edge of the world. But this is perhaps where I need to talk about me. I avoid talking about myself on this show because I don't want a show about ancient history to become a show about me, and I suspect most of you listening agree on that. But I do have a point of view on this, and when it comes to the Bible, I admit that my ideas on Israel's history affect my life and moral outlook more than my ideas on any other part of ancient history do. I can't be strictly objective. No one exists outside their own perspective. And so it's probably better that I explain my own faith 
and then do my earnest best to present the coming episodes in as balanced a fashion as I can manage and let you listening take it all into account. When I started this show, and for most of my life, I was an atheist. I tried not to be annoying about it, but I felt, along with many people, that our modern scientific understanding of the world simply had no place for a universal active creator. Over the last two years, I have had experiences of God, and I have more deeply studied the scripture. About one year ago, I was baptized, and have since personally felt the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But perhaps remarkably, my general sense of biblical historicity hasn't changed much. There are parts of the Bible which contain anachronisms. I discussed one back in episode 40 about how aspects of Genesis chapter 14 fit in more closely with the political concerns of the Iron Age, not the Bronze Age in which the patriarch Abraham is said to have lived. We'll encounter more such as we move forward. But the general sweep of history particularly through the book of Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then from a later perspective through Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Maccabees, is, in my opinion, a generally usable outline for what actually occurred historically. Now, my earlier skepticism heavily colored how I see certain details, like the divine intervention. But we see divine intervention all the time in Mesopotamian historical texts, and we never see that as cause to throw out the history itself. We just mentally remove Ishtar or Asher from the historical event and proceed as if the king and his people are responsible for their fates. Similarly, even a skeptic should be able to look at an event like Joshua entering Israel and say, well... We can pull out the miracle of the Jordan River parting and still have a bunch of Semitic tribesmen entering the region without actually changing the historical portion of the story too much. But that brings us more broadly to the subject of miracles in history, which I believe to be something that many people get far too worked up about. When it comes to the existence of miracles, historically speaking, each reader has three options. The first is to be convinced that there is no God, and therefore these miracles are simply impossible. The second is to believe that the God of the Bible exists as described, and thus every miracle described is possible. Though note that the mere existence of an all-powerful God does not prove that the miracles happened. We need something else to confirm the historicity of any particular miracle, whether that be faith in the word of the Bible or extra-biblical confirmation. The third option we will mostly ignore is that you believe in some sort of God with miracle power, but not the God of the Bible, and thus those miracles are either made up or actually from your God, but that third point of view doesn't really apply to most of the participants in the biblical archaeological debates. But what is not historically acceptable is the idea that any story which contains a miracle is therefore wholly false. And this seems to be a common assumption in atheist circles. Genesis contains a bunch of miracles, which is how we know the whole story is impossible. Or Jesus was a guy who went around performing a bunch of miracles, so we know he didn't exist and his whole story is made up. This is historically poor reasoning. To see why, consider someone much closer to the modern age. 
Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as Mormons. Here's a man very well recorded in secular and religious history, and the accounts of both are quite similar. His life is full of purported miracles, from the translation of the Book of Mormon to accounts of healing. A secular historian cannot say that because he claimed to do miracles, and miracles do not exist, therefore Joseph Smith did not exist. Instead, a secular historian looks at his claims to miraculous healings and says, okay, Joseph Smith existed, this other guy was sick, Joseph Smith prayed over this guy, this game guy became not sick, and that's the exact same sequence that a faithful historian would put it in. The faithful and secular historian can disagree about the accounting of the miracle without discounting the entire story. A secular historian can say Joseph Smith invented the Book of Mormon as a fiction, while a faithful historian can claim he was channeling divine inspiration when he narrated the text, but either have the basic historical reality that by 1830 the book was published. But that is where we get into historical biblical accommodation, which will be the narrative from here on out. The miracles either did or did not happen based on your personal faith, they are, with extremely few exceptions, not historical questions. And a lot of the details in the Bible are utterly beyond history to verify. But the Bible does present a story, and we can get a lot out of it just looking at it and considering what we can and can't verify. So we'll move through the coming episodes by beginning with the Bible. This is important for two reasons. First, because the Bible is the most significant set of literary works to come out of the ancient Near East, and a podcast called The Oldest Stories would be remiss in getting to this point and then ignoring it. Second, a lot of people just aren't familiar with the narrative events of the Old Testament. Having heard scattered stories and allusions just by being in the English-speaking world, but never having read it carefully as an historical text. This will necessarily bias the show away from the radically skeptical perspective, but as I said, I don't actually think the radically historical skeptical perspective is correct, and we're going to see why in upcoming episodes. And so with all that said, next time we're going to begin at the beginning and sort of zoom through real quick to talk about the Exodus and the formation period of early Israel. I have no idea how long this will all take, but we'll ultimately be taking Israel to the Assyrian conquest and Judah to the Babylonian conquest in this series. So strap on and hold on and get your angry emails ready. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening.